So the first thing I would tell them to do uh, is to uh, lean into that fear a little bit. Now, this is a little bit, this is why I was a crappy psychologist, right? This is why I had to quit. <laughs> but like, if you, uh, if, you know, if you're, if you're listening to this and going, wow, like, you know, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe this is tougher than I thought. Like, you're right. It's super tough. Like, you know, most people are not very good at this. And there's like a lot, there's a lot of broken dreams and a lot of sad people. So like lean into that a little bit, embrace that mediocrity, understand your own personal weaknesses uh, and, and, and own that, right? So that's uh, tip number one is you're not that great kid. You're listening to the Steady Trade Podcast a podcast that inspires traders to make meaningful strides and pursue their passions. Your hosts are Tim Bowen, the lead trainer at Stocks to Trade Pro, Kim Ann Curtin, the Wall Street coach, and Steven Johnson, the up-and-coming trader who's always willing to learn. Together, we'll sit down with experts to talk about their process, the lessons they've learned, and discuss how all traders can level up their trading careers. Welcome back, everybody, to the Steady Trade Podcast. Today, it's Steven Johnson and myself, Kim Ann Curtin, with a really cool guest that I'm so excited about because I happen to love this man's book, Daniel Crosby, uh, Dr. Daniel Crosby. He is a psychologist and behavioral finance expert who helps organizations understand the intersection of the mind and the markets. Uh, his first book was Pen- Personal Benchmarks. Integrating Behavioral Finance and Investment Management, and it was a New York Times bestseller. And his second book, The Laws of Wealth, was named the best investment book of 2017 by Axiom Business Book Awards, and it's been translated into five languages, which is a very rare thing. Uh, I can tell you that. His latest book uh, is called The Behavioral Investor, and if you are in any manner, shape, or form, a trader or an investor, you have to read this book. Uh, is a comprehensive look at neurology, physiology, psychology of sound financial decision making. And when he's not consulting around market psychology uh, and also being a chief uh, behavioral finance officer, he also enjoys exploring the American South. Uh, he fanatically follows the St. Louis Cardinals and he loves spending time with his wife and his three children. So welcome, Daniel, to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. Yeah, it's really good to have you. Uh, I think, you know, my my first question is going to be kind of like a little bit of a, a wild card, but I'm going to start with somebody that I love from my childhood, which is Winnie the Pooh, because that was like one of my more favorite quotes. And I never in a million years thought Winnie the Pooh would have an appropriate, fantastic advice for traders our audience primarily are day traders. So tell us, Daniel, why Winnie the Pooh actually has the perfect wisdom for most traders. So I, you're kind of putting me on the spot here. I believe the quote is never underestimate the power of doing nothing. Is that the quote? That is the quote. Good. I know my, I know my Pooh bear. That was a nervous moment for me. I knew I, but uh, so so yeah, Winnie, uh, Winnie the Pooh and I see eye to eye on many things. We both like to take it slow. Uh, I'm from I'm from Alabama originally, even though I live in Atlanta now, and I just grew up with sort of a slow pace of life. 
And that's something that I've tried to extend to my investing and uh, investment decision making. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of wisdom there. I think one of the most, you know, mo- one of the most profound uh, biases that 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 hamstrings our ability to trade well or to invest well is this bias towards action and this belief that when the game is on the line or when things are um you know when things are up in the air that the thing to do is something that you know we need to be acting we need to be working uh and to be fair that's true most places in life you know one of the things that's so difficult about trading or investing relative to you know other parts of life is that the rules are almost 180 degrees. You know, uh, if you want to get smarter, you read more books. You know, if you want to get stronger, you lift more weights. Uh, But if you want to make more money, you do less. Like, and that's kind of a weird thing. Sort of the paradox that less is more, I find is hard for us to get our heads around uh, because we're really wired to try and, we're really wired to try and go for it when the game is on the line. But Pooh Bear has some wisdom for us there. Can I can I just jump in as well? I thought it was interesting that in the study quoted in the book that women would do better than men because men had a tendency to do a bit more. But but also what I was interested about is is trading not more of a game like Michael Jackson? Sorry, um, Michael Jordan, not Michael Jackson. Michael Jordan will take thousands and thousands and thousands of jump shots to make sure he nails the one shot in the game. Would you say trading was like that? Or is it literally a case of doing less and case keep it simple, stupid? Yeah, so the the literature on, on men versus women and in investing is really interesting. So what they found is that women tend to outperform men. Uh, women were better at weighting probability. Women were more patient. Uh, women made more nuanced moves. They were sort of less likely to go all to cash. Uh, you know, they were less likely to take too much or too little risk better position sizing. Uh, And what's interesting is they found that um, marriage also helped a lot. So married men outperformed single men, married women outperformed single women. So I think age helps a lot. Uh, But it's really kind of a complicated subject when it comes to to gender differences and, and investing because there's physiological differences. But the, but the main reason we can point to is that women just do less Women are just more patient. They're less active when it comes to trading. So I don't think it's like uh, Michael Jordan. I mean, in in every study, we've studied this now in 19 different countries, and there's an inverse relationship between activity and performance. So I I don't think it's a matter of, of, of repetition, maybe, maybe on paper, but when real money's involved, I think you gotta be a little more careful. Oh, so Stephen, maybe you will actually consider becoming a, no longer a playboy. If that's going to benefit your trading, I'm thinking he's going to have to get out, go out and get married because of that set. <laughs> Time to settle down if you want to get paid, Stephen. <laughs> no, but uh, but honestly, though, I mean, I, like I've literally just made the transition from from working full time and trading full time, and then I was making as much trading as I was working. So I was just like, oh, I may as well just trade full-time and have freedom. And the minute, this first month that I've gone trading full-time, I'm on my first red month since I can remember. And I just, I'm just like, what on earth has happened? But then when I was listening to your book, I was thinking, ah, a lot of things are starting to make sense. A lot of things are, are, are clicking now. Well, it's the, you know, it's the, it's the irony, again, it's that paradox. Like in some ways, 
having less time to devote to it may be better. You know, you may have to choose your shots a little bit more. You may have to be a little more yeah. patient, maybe more distracted. So I, you know, I see upside and downside both ways, but, but the, the research on overactivity is pretty unequivocal that, that patience is a big help. Yeah. The, the fav, one of the favorite quotes, and I'm kind of paraphrasing it a little bit is um, if a demigod was set out to design the worst investor, it would have created you. And I just thought with that in mind, what advice can you give to the, the traders out there? Cause there's tens of thousands of everyone, especially in these current situation and context of the world right now, trying to make it, I mean, you've saw the influx of, of people signing up for brokerage accounts. I mean, what advice can you give to people who are completely wired the wrong way to trade? <laughs> so, uh, you, you, I love that. I love that quote. If I did, if I did write it myself. So the, the, <laughs> the thing, uh, the thing about us that I tried to cover in the behavioral investor is that soup to nuts. We suck at this. Like from the from the way that we are wired physiologically to the way that our psychology works to the way that our society is set up for us to defer to other people and to to relative not in truthful individualistic ways, but in, um, but in collective ways, like sociologically, psychologically, physiologically, we're screwed. And so I think understanding that is the first step to guarding against it. So let's take those one at a time, right? So psychologically, I think this is where some traders have some awareness, right? I think most traders I know are pretty tuned into the psychological elements of this. And so I think that is something that most traders are already cognizant of and, and addressing to, to a greater or lesser extent. But physiologically, you know, um, when I was a psychologist, I mean, I guess I still am, but when I was a therapist, right, back when I was a, a clinician, I would have people come into my office and say, hey, doc, you know, I'm anxious. And I'd say, well, you know, tell me about your life. And it would be like, well, you know, I start off the day with, uh, you know, uh, six Mountain Dews. And then, you know, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like, there you go. Like, that's it. You, this is why you're anxious, because you're living horribly. And nobody <laughs> ever wanted to hear that. Nobody ever wanted to hear that diet and exercise and rest and meditation and some of these things that can help you physiologically can put you in a better place. Like everyone wants a mental trick or a pill or some magic beans or a magic word. Taking care of yourself, getting adequate rest, eating the right stuff, getting exercise, like all of that is fundamental to your performance as a trader. And I think that most people don't realize that. So I, I would say don't neglect some of those physical, uh, physical markers. And then uh, for me, nothing, nothing beats a system. You know, this is sort of my, my meta meta lesson of all the time I've spent researching behavioral finance is that sort of the meta lesson is automate, 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 you know, set yeah. your rules, set your rules and never deviate from them. There's a hundred ways to make money trading and investing, uh, but you've got to find your own sort of personal religion and live in a way that's consistent with that. And one of the things that's tough about emotion is that it makes us a stranger to our rules. You know, Dan, Dan Ariely did this fan, fantastic study. He was, he was tasked with studying, you know, the spread of sexually transmitted disease and he said, well, do, do people just not know? Like, is there a lack of education? 
And what he found is like, yeah, no, everybody knows what to do, right? Like everybody knows what to do to prevent the spread of, of sexual trans uh, STDs. But in a moment of passion, nobody gives a damn, right? Yeah. And so yeah. it's, it's not that you lack the knowledge, it's that you lack the discipline in that emotional moment. So automating and, and then finding a way to adhere to those rules, I think are the two most powerful things you can do. Have you found that there are specific ways to put in boundaries or buffers to stay true to those rules, like a trading buddy? We talked about that sometimes in the Stock to Trade Pro room, that sometimes having somebody who can kind of be there holding you accountable or making sure you're a man of your word or a woman of your word. If there's any other tips or tricks you have, please share. Yeah, I think, um, I think anything that can put distance between you and like the nuclear football kind of is, is positive. So if it's, you know, if it's hiding your password, if it's, uh, if it's you know, uh, for, for some investors, you know, one of the things that I do is I keep most of my real money with an outside advisor, right? Because I just don't want to, I, I trade you know, I trade a smaller account here on my own that I can mess mm -hmm. with, but mm -hmm. like my, most of my money, I want little access to it because I'm not a good trader, uh, you know, and I, I don't want, I don't want that pressure on me. So I think a coach, a buddy, and then anything you can do to make it more difficult to do the wrong thing, any kind of obstacles you can put in your way, or even just a rule, um, you know, even just a rule that, you know, I've got to walk, <laughs> I got to walk three miles before I can, you know, hit this button. I think wow. any of those, anything you can do to put some distance between you and that emotional decision is a powerful thing. Wow. So just take it in from the beginning is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you're also saying, I mean, I, I was reading a book, the, the more emotional you are, uh, the, 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 the more chance you're going to make a bad decision, right? And the more money on the line, like money is the root of all evil. The more money that's on the line, the more likely you're going to make a mistake. I think you said it knocks you out of homeostasis. Um, and so I find that when trading's going well, when the patterns are all working, there's no real emotion. You're making the right decisions. You're trading like a robot. And, and that's the kind of the analogy that I really like, trading like a robot with no emotion. But but how, how could, could is there any way of helping someone when when the trend's not their friend, when things aren't going well for them, I mean, is there a way to combat? I know you've kind of already answered, but is there any technique other than that to to subdue the emotion? Yeah. So one of the things that I found in the book was that um, money induces greater emotion in us than uh, sex or death or any of these sort of, you know, religion, any of these other sort of loaded topics that we think about really sort of elicit strong emotion in us, money elicits more emotion in us than any of those things, right? So from the outset, you're right. Like, you're absolutely right that money is the root of all emotion, right? Mm -hmm. Money is the root of all emotion. It does more to sort of kick up dust for us emotionally than anything else. And so we have to understand that. Uh, is there a way to make us unemotional about money? No, I don't, I don't think there is. And I think especially when there's big money on the line, but there are things that we can do. You know, I mean, I think exercise is one. I think having an outlet like a friend is one. 
I think putting some distance is one. None of those things are perfect and all of those things are easier said than done. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think there's any way that you can be a trader or even an investor and say that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be emotionless in this. You just have to, you have to believe in your system enough that it can see you through those periods of emotional instability. Cause I don't think there's any magic words that anyone can say to you that'll make it easy. It's, it's a deeply, deeply emotional subject. And, and knowing that about it is I think the first step. You know, when Stephen said that about, you know, in from your book, that concept of that the emotions are going to get us into danger. And then he was saying, you know, the more somebody could be like a robot, I, I'm always coming from the perspective of we're never going to be robots. So how do you, I, I'm somebody who feels that the emotions actually can be of, of service to you if you have the awareness that they are going to potentially take you down roads that are not in your best interest, but, but ignoring them or pretending they're not there or denying them or saying they are the trouble. I, I don't think is a a great approach. And I got the sense from your book that you didn't either, but you explain it in your own words, if you understand where I'm trying to go with that. Yes. So emotion, uh, emotion is tricky. So the research on emotion says uh, first of all, that there are, there are places in our life where emotion can be a, a positive sort of early warning risk indicator, right? So in relationships, right? Like if you are dating someone, Stephen, if you're dating someone and you get a bad vibe about them, you're probably right. Like that's probably, you know, your, your body's probably telling you something. Your emotions are probably telling you something. But this ability to use emotion as sort of an early warning indicator or risk management tool diminishes as we get into waters that have a couple of things in common. So one of the things that makes it hard for emotion to work is if it's a decision that we make infrequently, right? So depending on where you are in your trading journey, if you're 25 years deep as a trader, emotion may be, uh, may be quite good. If you're on week two, it probably doesn't mean a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you, you just don't have sort of the reps to, to have informed that emotion. The second thing is we don't, uh, is when sort of stimulus and response um, are distant. So, you know, there, there are certain times where, you know, you, you eat something bad, you get sick like that night, you know, you know, immediately, oops, bad call. That wasn't great. And you know better next time. Uh, with investing or, or even trading, sometimes we don't know. Like, you know, sometimes we might make a buy or sell decision and we may not know, depending on the time frame that you're trading, you may not know for months or even years whether that was the right call. So the longer your time horizon, the harder it gets. Uh, the more ambiguity, the harder it gets. And I think there's a lot of ambiguity in markets. And then the shorter your your level of experience the worse an indicator it tends to be. So it's tricky because there are times when, you know, I talked in the book about people who were pulling cards out of a rigged deck and they would start to sweat. Um, They they were asked to choose which deck was rigged and which deck was the the normal deck. And their palm would start to sweat uh, 
with the rigged deck before they could articulate it. Basically, their emotional, uh, their emotions yeah. were telling them this is unfair before they could articulate, you know, hey, this is the rigged deck. So there is something to emotion, but it's not like a blanket catch-all. And I think especially for people who are novices, uh, it, it may be telling you exactly the wrong thing. So it's tricky. Yeah, yeah. What, what do you feel as your, as your even as, what was it that got you into therapy to begin with? So I had a loved one with an eating disorder is what got me into therapy. So I was, uh, I was a missionary for my church for a couple of years. And so I came back from my mission experience, like wanting to do good in the world. Yeah. I had a loved one with an eating disorder. And I said, here it is. Here's my chance to do good in the world. Wow. And so sort of helping her out of that. Uh, was my uh, my entry point into into psychology and therapy, and now of course i 've gone pretty far afield from that, but that was sort of my that was sort of my entry point into the world of clinical psychology wow that 's an incredible story it 's really beautiful dan do, do you feel as you journeyed through all that you 've journeyed through and gone in the direction of the psychology of money, the psychology of investing? Do you feel there was something along the way or a couple of some things that shocked you, that just shocked you? Yeah, um, I think a couple of things that we've already talked about is just how bad we are at this. You know, just, mm -hmm. just how essential it is and how ill-equipped we are for it. Because, I mean, unless you are, you know, just clocking an enormous salary, you've got to invest to survive. I mean, just to keep up with inflation, you've got to learn to compound your wealth if you're going to get by at all. So in, in our modern milieu, right, we have to learn to compound our wealth and we're just not wired for it. So that was a little bit shocking to me. The other thing that I love to, to quote uh, that was a little shocking to me was that we lose 13% of our cognitive processing power under financial stress. So when we're freaked out about money, we lose 13% of our IQ effectively which means all these good lessons that people have picked up, you know, listening to y'all's podcast, they tend to be out the door at the moment when we need them most. So again, that's where I think, uh, you know, journaling helps, um, a coach helps, a buddy helps, a system helps, anything that can kind of get us back to those rules, because we tend to have least access to our insights at the very moment when we need them most. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about the physiology uh, and the impact on those, you know, kind of, let's, let's talk about critical decisions, but then not even critical decisions, just, you know, basic, basic trading decisions. You know, let's say it's not a critical moment. It's just, uh, what, what are the, what is the experience somebody has physiologically that they can at least start to be an observer of? So from a physiological perspective, I think one of the most important things to understand about your body is the mismatch between the, the size of your brain uh, and the caloric expenditure of your brain. So your brain is like, whatever, two to 3% of your body weight, but it accounts for somewhere around 25 to 30% of all the calories you burn in a given day. And so your body is always looking for ways uh, to think less. You're always, you're always looking for ways to kind of shut down your brain and kind of coast on someone else's ideas or just to not think, right? 
And so uh, weirdly, this, this happens in a couple of ways that I think we've seen recently. Um, in the face of uncertainty, you know, uncertainty requires a lot of us from sort of a cognitive processing load. We have to sort of examine all eventualities. We have to consider all different paths, all different outcomes. So what people tend to do is they tend to default either into um, just what we call catastrophizing, you know, just sort of imagining the worst possible scenario. I'm really good at that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, me too, me too. Every, everything you know is good at that. We don't, uh, we don't get into this business because we're well-adjusted, right? So, like, <laughs> so true, it's so true. I just was doing it yesterday, and I was like, oh, my God, would you just shut up, Ed? It's the catastrophizing. It's crazy, yeah. but it's just like it happens, and we got we to know that it's like part of the, you know. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. So, you know, catastrophizing is one response to that because it's, it's, it's interestingly a way for you to think less, you know, assuming the worst, like it's all just, it's all just going to come crashing down. Like I'm on this family text and I just got like this series of, um, series of op-eds about the end of American democracy. Right. So it's like, you know, if you just assume that it's all going to die, that's that's one way to think less. Uh, the other place that we go is massive overconfidence, like just blowing past all the nuance, blowing past all the uncertainty and going, no, you know what? I know exactly what's going to happen. It's going to be like this. And so I think anytime we find ourselves in one of those camps, which is like great certainty uh, Mm -hmm. about what the future holds or uh, great certainty that the future is going to be absolutely dismal, that is weirdly sort of a physiological response to uncertainty. So I think that's a good, um, that's a good sort of check against mm-hmm. this, this small but hungry brain of ours getting us, you know, getting us sideways. Yep, that's awesome. Uh, I'll just jump in. There's one, one interesting quote. It was by a guy called Adam Smith that you mentioned in the book, and I thought it was really interesting. It said, if you don't know who you, I'm again paraphrasing, if you don't know who you are, Wall Street is a bad place to find out. And I thought that was really interesting because a lot of traders that I know say they find out who they are through trading, that they, they develop, they find out who they truly are through trading. I mean, would you say someone should go to have many psychology sessions before they go into the market? Mm-hmm. Is that a preparation or, or do you just lose and learn and figure it out? Uh, it seems like, I mean, depending on how you're sizing your position, it seems like an expensive, uh, it seems like an expensive form of therapy. Um, I think there's a lot you can learn um, through introspection. I'm a huge advocate, of course, of therapy. Uh, I'm a huge advocate of books. I mean, the trading community more so than the investing community, at least historically, has really embraced psychology as sort of what it's all about. So I think there's no shortage of resources there. You know, it's the whole quote about if we don't learn the lessons of history, we're doomed to repeat them. Like a lot of people have suffered a lot of pain uh, in the markets to learn who they were. Uh, And you can learn about that the easy way or the hard way. And so I think, uh, I think there's a lot that can be done the easy way by looking at history, by reading books, but then some lessons have to be learned the hard way. I, I think there's certain lessons uh, that don't really stick with you until uh, you, you live through them. 
And, you know, for me, it's, I'll look at these, you know, you look at a hundred year mountain chart or something and you're like, oh, okay, well, here was a 35% drawdown and it's, you know, it's very sterile, it's very cold, you're very dispassionate about it. But when we lived through a 35% drawdown earlier this year, I was, I was not cold and sterile and dispassionate. I was quite wound up, right? <laughs> so I think there are, I think there, are um, there are things you can do to put yourself in a good place to learn, but then some things have to be learned firsthand. Uh, and, and so again, I think that's a, that's a vote for risk management and doing things smartly so that you can live to fight another day. You live to learn those lessons and fight another day. I know. And, and the other thing that I found interesting was you were saying that people remember kind of the first thing and the last thing mm-hmm. that they're taught, but they forget what's in the middle. And I'd heard that before when doing presentation techniques, you, that you start strong and you end strong. But it made me think about kind of studying and learning. Do you have any kind of techniques in terms of studying? Because you should always be recapping your trades, recapping the market, seeing what's happening. But I mean, I just thought, well, if I'm just wired to remember the first things that I learned when I started, then am I just going to lose information in the middle or you know what I mean? So I think where it comes, I think, so this is called primacy and recency. So we tend to have the the best memory for things that happen early and late in a sequence, like you said. So think about someone, think about the famous Robin Hood trader, right? So a Robin Hood trader who uh, opened their first account uh, whatever, May of, you know, late April, May of this year and starts trading Carnival Cruise Lines and Delta stock or whatever, whatever the beaten up names of the day were. And maybe now, you know, they're up 50, 60%. Yeah. They can learn all the wrong lessons, right? The, they can learn early in their trading career, all the wrong lessons. For me, I started making money uh, professionally, I started making money 2007, 2008. So that's when I started, you know, beginning to invest. And quickly, I saw my nascent earnings go through the wood chipper, right? So for me, I feel like I've always been a little risk averse because of that, what happened to me early on in my investing career. So I think the lesson here is to be a market historian, because your specific trading experience is 100% of your experience, but it's like less than 1% of the experience of markets broadly. So yeah. that's why I think we have to familiarize ourselves with the, the, the range of possibilities and realize that our particular experience is a very, very small slice of that and, and yeah. that it can have tilted us uh, in a way that might make us too aggressive or too conservative and be aware of those biases based on where we started and where we find ourselves now. Um, Nassim Taleb of Black Swan fame talks about uh, what he calls the Lucretius problem after this philosopher Lucretius who thought that the, the tallest mountain he had ever seen was the tallest mountain in the world. And I think a lot of traders can do that to, to say, well, what I've lived through is all that there is to live through. And that is frankly not the case. Right. So you need to learn, you know, what are what are markets capable of? What are they capable of to the upside and and more importantly, to the downside? And how can I protect myself, uh, you know, against against those negative eventualities? Yeah, no, no, you're very, very right. And because I'll I'll never forget, I mean, I started about four years ago in quieter markets and I think, ah, 
the stock gets up 100%, short it. Not, no stock's ever going to go above 100%, up above 120%. I'm just going to put me full account if it goes 100%. Then I saw me first 500% runner on the day, and I thought, okay, okay, I really don't know what I'm doing. And uh, there's, there's a lot, there's a, but basically the, the right answer is to kind of not put too much emotion and value in your experiences and really just study the history and study the market. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any one person's experiences are enormously limited relative to the, the breadth of market history. So one of the quotes from the book here that I have, that I always kind of highlight is the psychology of individuals, warts and all, must be central consideration in the formulation of any practical approach. It says investing approach, but I want to say even trading approach. The good news here is that others' misbehavior will consistently uh, and systematically create opportunities for you. The bad news is that you are prone to all of the same quirks and are just as likely in the absence of a strict adherence to rules to create the same opportunities for others. So just, just, talk a little bit about that. I, I think especially part of what I'm an advocate of is I say, look, the better you know yourself, the better chance you're going to be able to be connected to what the person on the other side of your trade is going to be going through. And that quote to me is kind of like, it just sums it right up. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So I think, you know, there's a couple of things I'd emphasize here. The first is that you are not special, right? Like you are not, you're not, uh, you're not better. You're not smarter. You're not less biased than your counterparties. And I think that uh, an understanding of your baseness and your mediocrity is like the (laughs) starting point for every good investor or trader, because I think that, once you um, once you own your own personal mediocrity, you can begin to protect against it and build mm-hmm. systems that will make you more than mediocre. But I think so many people read books like mine um, as a window onto other people's irrationality. Like, oh, I'm going to read this and see how stupid like the unwashed masses are, and I'm going to go <laughs> eat the lunch, you know, when I when I totally. trade against them. And the way that I want you to use a book like mine is as a mirror onto your own idiocy, right? <laughs> so you, you, read a, you read a book like mine and, and you see yourself in it, not your, yeah. you know, not your spouse or your best friend or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the second point there is that human behavior is immutable, right? Like all, it's, it's never going to change. Like people have been crazy for hundreds of years and they'll be crazy hundreds of years from now. And so the study of, you know, uh, specific uh, facets of the market, like certain elements of the market will change, certain anomalies will be discovered and then quickly arbitraged away um, because there's no sort of psychological underpinning to it. Stuff like calendar effects and stuff gets arbitraged away because it's easy to do. Once we discover it, we go, okay, cool, and now it's gone. But human behavior is sort of the last... <laughs> the last the last stand we can take because it's not going anywhere and i would bet you know i'm long human irrationality for eternity <laughs> so, yeah, where, where can i put my money on that bet <laughs> <laughs> no but on the subject of human irrationality i mean what kind of blew me away is when you were mentioning that the more useful the information is that someone can learn the more, the less likely they are to update their belief system with it. 
And I just thought, what the hell? Why would someone not want valuable information? But it, it's like the thought process that people are too lazy to, to think, oh, I'm going to have to update this and update that and change this and change that. They'd rather live as they are and lose. It's a cognitive, it's the cognitive cost, right, Then, Yep, that's what yeah, it, it goes back to that cognitive cost again, right? So it's, uh, like, like you said, I talk in the book about how the most useful information tends to be sort of meaty and weighty and hard to digest. And, you know, maybe there's some numbers and some, there's some math involved and God knows people don't like that. And so uh, people, you know, leave it on the side for sort of simple, simple heuristics, simple rules. I mean, just something topical. There was a report out today that said two thirds of American adults don't know about the Holocaust. Like, I mean, it's just like the, you know, the stupidity of the average person is just mind blowing. So this is, this is who you're up against in some respects. And so you have to, um, if you're willing to put in a little work, and if you're willing to, you know, to, to read the 10 K's and if you're willing to do the math and, and do the due diligence, uh, there may be, uh, there may be some alpha in there for you, uh, relative, you know, to, to people who are enumerate and lazy and, and other things. But I, I've kind of thought that as well, though, like a lot of people talk about studying a lot and a lot of people talk about making a lot of effort, but I've found that if you just do a couple of hours a day, just to learn the craft, you actually can quite quickly get ahead of other people. Yeah. But, and the other thing that you mentioned was, but I mean, it's tough because like you were saying, people make what, 35,000 decisions a day. That's a lot of it. That's a lot of decisions, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're tired, right? People are tired. And I mean, you said to put a couple of hours a day into your craft. If you put a couple of hours a day into anything, you know, playing guitar, you're running, whatever, you know, whatever, you're very good at it in a couple of years. And so I think there's so few people who are willing to put in a couple of hours a day for any kind of sustained period of time for, for any real effort. And so I think if you're willing to do that, you'll quickly find yourself in the top percent of whatever your pursuit is. Hmm. What what would you say? Go ahead, Stephen. Did you have another question? What did you say, Uh, Sam? I said I'm really down on human humanity today. That was <laughs> I, I was I was thinking we're kind of we're kind of like shitting on people a little bit, but it's the truth. It's the truth. I don't think I don't think he's shitting on them at all. I think he's trying no, to just we, 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 not not him. No, well us too. But I, I think what we're trying to say is like <laughs> we are we are human beings that are have frailties and it, and we have a tendency to not be willing to be with that truth. And, and it doesn't mean you're, it, you gotta like hang it up. It's like, no, be aware that these are your potential, uh, you know, potholes and how do you mitigate for them? Like come, come up with a solution, come up with like a, a way to realize, okay, that's my tendency. How do I strengthen myself to not go that tendency? Well, you know, another thing while we're, while we're dumping on humankind, you know, another thing, <laughs> another thing that's, you know, that, that we do is we have this backfire effect. So we've shown that if, if people get information that runs contrary to sort of a cherished or valued belief, when they receive that information, not only do they not incorporate it, 
they actually double down on their bad idea. They actually get yeah. more strengthened in their, in their wrongheadedness. And so you have to be, you know, uh, sort of this idea of strong ideas loosely held, right? That's so big in Silicon Valley. You have to, you know, do your homework. You have to have some conviction if you're going to be successful, but you also have to have an open-mindedness to having those convictions rattled if the data, if the data change. And one of the things I won't, I won't talk about individual security, but, you know, but uh, you see on Twitter and on stock twits and other places that people are either in this love it or hate it camp with certain sort of cult stocks. And that's a bad place to find yourself because if you are sort of emotionally, uh, if you're emotionally involved with a holding like that, uh, you become sort of impervious to new information. Yeah, I'll, I'll just. Uh, I saw that and I read that in the book, and I thought it was quite interesting because it's like you will read all of the information and consider all the variables, make the trades, but then once you make the trade, and the more money in that trade, the more you have weight and a hold into it, right? The more you think, oh, I'm going to be right, I'm going to be right. The more you attach the sentiment towards it, so it's almost like if try and detach anything from it and just watch the price action and, and judge it based on that. So, so what? It depends on your system, right? So, I mean, if you're if you're a technical investor, maybe it's price action. If you're more of a value fundamental person, maybe you know what are what are the uh, what are the series of events, right, that would cause me to change my mind? So, there's something in psychology called a pre mortem, right? We all know what a post mortem is. It's like this trade blew up. What went wrong? But now you're now you're out of money. So a pre-mortem is, you know, a pre-mortem is I'm going to anticipate failure before it happens. You know, if I were to change my mind about this position, what would be the cause of it? Would it be a change in leadership? Would it be a loss of uh, price momentum? Would it be change in the fundamentals? Whatever your system is, I don't care. But I think you need to sort of pre-commit to that and then stick to those rules. Yeah, it's 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 honestly about having a plan with when you come to make it and kind of not changing the plan, right? Because you make a plan with the emotion that you've had behind the trade and then you take the trade and then you don't really deviate from that plan because if you do everything ahead of that's kind of emotional and you're invested already. Mm-hmm. As in day trading, we say the same thing like, look, this is me entry. I'm going to stop out here. If it does this, I'm out here. And, but you don't though. Once it goes wrong, you think you start thinking, no, no, maybe this, maybe that, or you get an emotional investment into it. Well, it, it sounds though like what Daniel's saying is he's saying prepare for that, that it's, that it's normal yeah, yeah, yeah. to that's have right. that, oh, well, it's going to be different for me. And if you prepare for that, then you have a chance at not, it, it's almost like a wave, like in the ocean, you say, oh, I'm going to be able to handle myself. And then that wave comes and you're like, whoa, I really can't, you know, withstand it. So it's like baking that in from the beginning. Yeah. The, the the only other main thing that I wanted to mention was when you were saying too little or too much information makes markets inefficient. Can you just explain that a bit more? So um, one of the things that we find about lots of information is that it tends to uh, increase confidence, but it doesn't increase decision-making prowess. So we see this in everything from stock picking to gambling you know, they did a famous study on this with college football teams, right? It's like you could have 
three pieces of information or 30 pieces of information uh, on which to place your bet. And of course, uh, people will always opt for the 30 if given the chance. And what 30 does is it causes them to make more extravagant bets. It causes them to be poor risk managers, but it doesn't tell you a whole lot. So I think when you're developing your trading system, there's going to be whatever, a handful or two handfuls of things that are going to be important to you. Because if you tend to every little bit of minutia and every bit of nonsense and news that comes across your desk with respect to any given uh, security, you're going to be driven mad. And, And, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is how uh, we tend to confuse noise and probability. Things that are loud tend to seem likely to us. So these sort of uh, low impact, low likelihood news events will happen and we'll tend to make a very big deal out of them when it may not mean much for the company or, or for, the, or for yeah. the asset class you're trading. So, you know, that's just, sort of a, that's just sort of a call to find that sweet spot for information for you. You know, what does that look like? But it's not going to be a thousand things, right? That, yeah. that leads yeah. to overconfidence or decision paralysis, but it doesn't always help a lot. So what are the handful or two handfuls of things that matter to you? Attend to those things, do your due diligence well there, and then and leave the rest alone. Hmm. Yeah. All right. So if you're, you're talking to a new trader who's watching us and maybe they're a little bit down right now because of all that we've talked about and they're thinking, oh my God, am I even going to be able to withstand all the news about my brain and my physiology? What would you say are the top three things you would point them towards? So the first thing I would tell them to do uh, is to uh, lean into that fear a little bit. Now, this is a little bit, this is why I was a crappy psychologist, right? This is why I had to quit. <laughs> but like, if you, uh, if, you know, if you're, if you're listening to this and going, wow, like, you know, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe this is tougher than I thought. Like, you're right. It's super tough. Like, you know, most people are not very good at this. And there's like a lot, there's a lot of broken dreams and a lot of sad people. So like lean into that a little bit, embrace that mediocrity, understand your own personal weaknesses uh, and, and, and own that. Right. So that's uh, tip number one is you're not that great kid. Right. So tip number two, (laughs) tip number two is become a market historian, right? Expand, Mm -hmm. expand that view. So that you don't think that, you know, what, what you've experienced is all there is to experience. And I think tip number three is based on your, your search of history, based on your search of how markets work, find that handful of, of uh, signals that you're going to look at that will inform your trading system, set up that system, automate it, and never deviate from it. So, yeah. you know, you're stupid, be a market historian, set up your system. Those are the three, those are the st- three steps. Those, those sound like excellent steps to me. How, what do you think, Stephen? I, I honestly think I probably couldn't have summarized it uh, better, than, better than Daniel has, and that's why I'm currently not an author. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, there was so much in this conversation, and yet I still have probably 50 other questions. So would you be willing to maybe consider coming back another time? Yeah, absolutely. This was fun. Okay, good. It was just really that I feel like there's just not enough conversations around this and uh, for all of our sakes for all of traders 
for all investors, for, for every human being who has to deal with money. We're all dealing with money all the time. And to hear, you know, to know that like that is the place where the least rational uh, feels like, a, like almost like a national crisis, that conversation has to be had. We have to really learn this about ourselves so we can take care of ourselves and our families, you know, and our uh, well-being for the future of the country. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be nicer to humankind next time, I promise. Okay. Don't they, don't they, don't they? I mean, you're just being honest and everyone needs a reality check. Yeah, I you're giving me the candidness. That's very British of you, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I like the interview because I'm like, wow, the first American to see what he thinks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> This is just this is just amazing. So thank you. We're gonna have you back on maybe sooner than you even expect. <laughs> but we need this education, and I feel like it's so important, especially to young people. So thank you for coming here today and hanging there with, you know, all the pandemic mayhem.